Galatians 40, I'm sorry, not Galatians, Genesis. Genesis 48, we'll read verses 1 to 22 and expound it briefly. 48 verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, may the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, may the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, Bless the lads, and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn, Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. However, his youngest brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel shall pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh.
Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Amen. In chapter 48, we have Israel blessing the sons of Joseph. He first adopts them, and surprisingly, to Joseph's uh, surprise, puts Ephraim before Manasseh, though Manasseh is the firstborn. And in this chapter, we see both Israel and Joseph have a view of spiritual things and eternal things, not earthly things. Because both Israel and Joseph, especially Joseph, since he will have a longer life, be able to live longer in the land of Egypt as the ruler of Egypt, he will have temptations and his descendants will have temptations to remain in Egypt. However, they're looking to the promises of God, the promises to the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, looking to the future and God's plan for them as a nation and even even uh, more in the distant future to the coming of Christ and the coming of Christ and the accomplishment of their redemption, which means they are being heavenly minded here in this chapter. Let's keep that in mind as we review it. Verse 1, now it came about after these things that Joseph was told. Someone reports to Joseph after the things mentioned in the previous chapter. And in the previous chapter, Jacob is presented and, and his family, a portion of his family, presented to Pharaoh. The famine intensifies, becomes more severe. The people and their property all belongs to Joseph. And then Israel is, in verses 47, 27 and following, Israel is said to have lived in the land, Israel or Jacob, to live in the land of Egypt 17 years. Those incidents had happened in the previous chapter, but now is getting close to the end of his life. And we see this in chapter 48 because it says his um, father is sick. Behold, your father is sick. And this sickness is sickness unto death because it mentions this very fact in verse 21. Then Israel, or Jacob, said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. He knows this is a sickness unto death. We see here that everyone dies of his last sickness. Unless, of course, there's some accident that suddenly takes away... Uh, a person, that people typically die of their last sickness, contrary to what charismatics teach about sickness. Then verse 1 also mentions, so he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. Two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh was the firstborn, Ephraim the secondborn, in the land of Egypt. Not born in Canaan, but in the family of Joseph. Joseph, who married Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. Here, Manasseh is mentioned first. However, he will not be mentioned first throughout the rest of the chapter. Such as, verse 5, Ephraim and Manasseh. Verse 13, Joseph took 
them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right. Then in verse 17, it mentions from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Then in verse 20, which is the most significant because of the blessing, it says, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. It was typical to bless the firstborn more than the rest of the children with the inheritance. It was typical to do that. But here it's being reversed. It's being circumvented according to the free will of Jacob. Or we should say the free will of God expressed through the prophet Jacob the prophet and patriarch Jacob. It's God's will working to pronounce the blessing through Jacob to Joseph and Joseph's sons. According to God's will, Psalm 115.3, the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Verse 2, when it was told to Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come to you. Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. He collects his strength and sits up on the bed when Joseph is coming, when he hears that Joseph comes. Why? Because he knows this is a sickness unto death. Joseph is told it is a severe sickness, a sickness unto death. And Joseph knows that Israel or Jacob being a patriarch and being a prophet, he has a blessing to pronounce, just like Abraham and Isaac and others pronounce a blessing before their death. This blessing is not a common blessing, but it is a special blessing, a prophetic blessing to make the line of faith or the church, the church in the Old Testament, trust the promises of God to keep on being faithful and await the promises of God to be fulfilled. That's why Israel is collecting his strength to sit up in the bed. Also, in verse 2, this may be the occasion when Hebrews 11.21 is referring to him leaning on the top of his staff. It may be on this occasion. Remember, last time when we studied chapter 47, I had mentioned that There is some doubt on verse 31 when it says Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. The Hebrew says head of the bed, but the Greek Old Testament, I don't think I mentioned the Greek Old Testament. I did mention the Greek New Testament, Hebrews 11, 21, but not the Greek Old Testament. The Greek Old Testament also says the head of the bed and some think that Hebrews 11:21 is citing Genesis 47:31 from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. That may be the case. That may be the case, or it may be the case that Hebrews 11:21 is referring to another incident closer to the end of his life, which may be chapter 48, verse 2. Or it may be another occasion that is not actually recorded. Those are the three options, but we cannot take the option that Hebrews 11.21 is erroneous 
and misinterpreting and misunderstanding Genesis 47, 31, or even Genesis 48, verse 2. That view we cannot take because then it would undermine the inspiration and authority of the Bible. Verse 3, Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. God Almighty. He, has, he cites or refers to God as God Almighty because as God Almighty, he is able to fulfill the promises. Whatever he announces or promises, he has the power to ensure their fulfillment. And he does so through means, the means of humans and angels and whatever other parts of nature God wants to use to fulfill his promises. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. Luz is the first name, the former name of Bethel. In Genesis chapter 28 and also in 31, various places, this name Luz appears and we know it is the same as Bethel. It was renamed by Jacob because there God appeared to Jacob. In Genesis 28, he appeared to him and renamed it and Bethel means house of God. Luz means almond or almond tree, a place of almond trees. So that was its original name. And God blessed him. He blessed him with the patriarchal blessings. That is, whatever was promised to Abraham and Isaac, that is also conveyed and promised to Jacob. Verse 4. Now we have the content of that blessing. Remember, this blessing is not a common blessing, but a special, specific, spiritual blessing in relation to the promises of God that will unfold in the nation of Israel, but specifically in the person and work of Christ, who will benefit all the nations of the world, who will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Verse 4, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Jacob will be fruitful and numerous, a company of peoples. His 12 tribes, his 12 tribes or 13 tribes based on this chapter, because the tribe of Levi did not receive any vast territory like the other tribes did, they received cities within the territories of the various tribes. So they actually had 13 tribes, but 12 that received land or territory in the land of Canaan. And therefore, they did become a company of peoples, tribes. And at one point, for a long period in their history, these tribes became two nations, Two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And further, this land will be given to them. That is the land of Canaan. This land in verse 4 does not refer to the land of Egypt, but it refers to the land of Canaan according to verse 3. Because before Jacob left Canaan, when he fled to Padan Aram, God appeared to him in Genesis 28 and said, This land I will give to your descendants. After you for an everlasting possession. It will be owned by them permanently forever. Which intimates to us the spiritual, eternal, heavenly 
aspect of this blessing. Because the Bible, even the Old Testament, and we should say this about the Old Testament especially, the Old Testament is not a material and physical book, only so. People look at the Old Testament as having nothing to do with spiritual things, heavenly things, eternal things, unseen things, but only earthly things, or mainly earthly things. Yet that's not true. These promises have to be fulfilled physically so that Christ comes into the world and the gospel is preached to the rest of the world. Then the land of Canaan and the whole earth will belong to the people of God. For I am creating a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Or he is creating a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3, 13, 3, 3 to 13 explains the new heavens and the new earth after this one is destroyed. And then we shall possess the true church, the redeemed shall possess the whole world forever. Verse 5. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. The two sons of Joseph born in Egypt before Jacob arrived in Egypt. He arrived in Egypt by chapters 46 and 47. But in chapter 41, these two sons were born to Joseph in Egypt. That means that their citizenship, because of their nativity, is in Egypt, not Canaan. So if they go back to Canaan, they would be considered foreigners. But here, they're born in Egypt, and they're born to whom? To Joseph. Not Joseph before he was elevated to the ruler of Egypt, but to Joseph after he was elevated, and he even married an Egyptian woman. And therefore, what is the temptation of Joseph and also his sons and the rest of his family? To stay in Egypt, to enjoy the wealth and luxury, the honor, the glory in the court of Egypt, similar to what Moses would face in Exodus chapter 2, as explained in Hebrews eleven twenty four to 28. It would be a similar temptation to what Moses faced. But here, they're looking forward. They're resisting that. They're rejecting that. Because he says, these two sons are mine. Now when he says are mine, or shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are, what does he mean? What's he doing? It is commonly understood by various interpreters that he is adopting them. And yes, that is in fact what he's doing here. Jacob the patriarch, is adopting Ephraim and Manasseh. He is adopting them for the purpose of distributing, bequeathing his inheritance to the ones he wants to receive them. He is doing so, and he's giving to Joseph two portions, not in Joseph's name as though the tribes would be called Joseph, though sometimes It is referred to that way in the Bible. It is through his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. In that way, Joseph is receiving two portions when typically he would receive one portion. And why so one? Because he's not the firstborn. Reuben is. 
which he mentions in verse 5. Reuben, according to Genesis 29, 31 to 35, Reuben and Simeon were the firstborn and secondborn sons of Leah, who was the first wife of Jacob. So, first wife of Jacob, Reuben and Simeon, firstborn, secondborn. He mentions them because he is taking Ephraim and Manasseh from their position, lower position, and elevating them to a higher position in terms of the promises of God, the name, and the the covenants, and the inheritance. He's doing so. We notice that this is according to the sovereign will of God. Jacob, as a prophet, is not just merely announcing his own wishes, but he's pronouncing blessings by God. A quick reference to Jacob being a prophet is in 49.1. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. What shall befall you in the days to come? He is a prophet. Then for the first time we read in verse 5 how Jacob mentions Ephraim first. This is indicative of what he's about to do. Verse 6. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. This is the one verse in the Bible that mentions that Joseph actually had other offspring, other descendants, likely from his own first immediate family, certainly from his grandchildren and great-grandchildren, so forth. In those, yes, but likely... During his own lifetime, Joseph had more children, aside from these first two born. Manasseh firstborn, Ephraim secondborn. Aside from them, he had more. It says, but your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. But the following, the subsequent offspring, will be called by the names of their brothers. So they won't have a unique inheritance and a unique name or unique fame. They won't have that. They will all be assumed or subsumed under Ephraim and Manasseh. That's how it will be. Whatever inheritance they receive will be within the realm or territory of Ephraim and Manasseh. So their names will live on and not the names of their descendants. One more thing before we move on. In Genesis 48.5, this is adoption, legal adoption, where the grandchildren are adopted as the children of the grandparent or the grandfather. Uh, The Bible nowhere has a commandment, you shall adopt. And actually nowhere actually presents adoption as a virtue. People should adopt for whatever reasons they should adopt. Though adoption does take place in the Bible. 
I, I mention that because sometimes people are caught up with, well, if the Bible doesn't say it directly, then it's not right. Or if the Bible doesn't say it directly, then it's not wrong. They get caught up with misinterpretations of Scripture on different issues. Uh, this is only to say here, the Bible does see adoption as a good thing, but it never encourages anybody to do it or discourages anybody to do it, neither one way nor the other. Just a matter of interpretation, uh, just a caution when we interpret the Bible and quickly come to conclusions, one thing is good or one, the other thing is bad. Verse 7, Now as for me, when I came from Padan, this is abbreviated because it's Padan Aram usually, just like we often abbreviate names, Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. He now brings up the death of Rachel because Rachel was whom? She was the mother of Joseph and the favorite wife of Jacob. And she was uh, buried in the land of Canaan, but not in the tombs, not in the tombs of the patriarchs, because it would have taken too long after her death to take her to that place to bury her there. Therefore, since it was a sudden death, he had to bury her nearby on the way to Ephrath or Bethlehem. Ephrath or Bethlehem, two names of the same village or town. And so, and it was near this place or Bethlehem, um, most likely according to the geography mentioned in Genesis 35, 16 to 21, that it was probably about a mile away, a mile away to, from Bethlehem where this death occurred. The birth of Benjamin, Joseph's brother, and birth. Therefore, if Rachel was buried in Canaan, it's not a bad thing to think about Canaan and why we all were buried or want to be buried in Canaan. This will come up later when he has um, Joseph bury him in Canaan. In chapter 50, Joseph buries Israel in the land of Canaan. Verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Remember, this is when he says, who are these? This anticipates it's uh, in, in literature and in writing, it's called prolepsis, proleptic meaning. You say something that you don't really explain, but you assume by that something that's going to be explained later or something will be explained later that was not explained earlier. And therefore, when he says, who are these? It's not as though Israel knows nothing about Joseph's sons, never met them, never had interaction with them for 17 years. There's no way that that was the case. No way whatsoever. But it is a way to confirm audibly who is there. It is a way to confirm audibly who is there. And for rhetorical purposes, it's often necessary to just ask the question so that the obvious is announced by the other party. Like, 
God in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, or God to Cain in Genesis 4. For example, in Genesis 4, God says to Cain, where is your brother? And Cain's answer is, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And with that obstinate response, God says, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. God knew, but he wanted Cain to admit it, and Cain wouldn't. And that's also here, just a confirmation as to who is here. And Joseph, verse 9, said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. God has given me here in the land of Egypt. Who gave them? God did. He acknowledges the blessing of God God on the birth of children. And not only do the faithful understand it, the unfaithful understand it. Not only do Christians understand it, but pagans understand that children are a blessing from God. And this is Joseph giving the gratitude and the praise to God, which is often not done. When children are mentioned or or children are born, and even when people say, well, how many children do you have? Often we don't answer, we should answer, um, I have this number because God blessed me, or God gave me this number of children. We should practice that and answer it that way to show our gratitude to God. Joseph does so here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Bring them near that I may bless them. And this is the prophetic blessing. So verse 10, now we have the explanation, a further explanation as to what's happening. And that which is physical is mentioned here in order to make sure we understand what's going on in the spiritual, in reference to the crossing of the hands and whether Israel knows what he's doing or not. Verse 10, now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see which is often what happens, right? Our senses deteriorate. Eyes, our ears, our tastes, uh, our touch, feelings. Verse 10. Now, then Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them and embraced them because of his affection, which also shows that he knew them and loved them dearly. Verse 11. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. He never expected to see the face of Joseph. Why? Because way back in chapter 37, he thought Joseph was torn by a wild beast, because that was the impression the brothers of Joseph gave to him. It's not, he, he's not saying, I never expected in unbelief because I had no faith in God. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the fact that he assumed, since the brothers conveyed it, and there, were more, there was more than one brother who conveyed that, so a few witnesses telling him or implying to him that a wild animal had killed him. So that, in that sense, he never expected not because of unbelief. But 
according to the way God surprises us, he says, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Not only did that get reversed, the death of Joseph, in a, in a, in a, at least in terms of his, his own experience, in that sense, in a miraculous way, suddenly he learns that Joseph is alive and he sees Joseph alive. And not just Joseph, but Joseph as the ruler of Egypt. And not only that, but the children of Joseph, which would make all grandparents happy to see not only uh, their own children, but the grandchildren. Verse 12. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. They were perhaps uh, near Joseph. Maybe Joseph was seated and they were at his knees. Um, Most likely they were not infants or toddlers. Most likely they were at least Manasseh was um, or Ephraim was at least 24 years old. Right. At least 24 years old. And why so? First, because in Genesis 47, 28, Jacob lived 17 years in the land of Egypt. But there were seven years of famine before Um, in the land of Egypt, right? Right. And the sons of Joseph were born before the 70 years of famine in 4150 to 52. These two sons of Joseph were born before the years of famine. So 17 plus 7, 24. And if Ephraim is the second born, Manasseh would have been at least 25 years old and Ephraim at least 24 years old. 25 and 24 with a very conservative estimate of their age. And therefore, they are aware enough, they are adults aware enough to understand and to know what's going on here. And what are they doing? We don't see any hint of their resistance to any of this. No hint of their resistance. So verse 13, And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. This would have been the customary way, the normal way, because the firstborn needs to be at the right hand of the patriarch. That would be the normal way to do it. So that when the patriarch puts his hands on the son's, as a symbol of the blessing, the desired blessing to convey from the patriarch to the next generation, it would be convenient to go like this instead of crossing the hands. So then, verse 14, But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although... Manasseh was the firstborn. He crosses his hands and places them on the head of each. The NASB and other translations will render it crossing the hands, but there are translations like the KJV and NKJV which add an adverb here, wittingly, 
Yeah. Or deliberately, intentionally. He knew what he was doing. Now, the adding of that adverb is justified. We know it's justified because in verse 19, Israel says this in verse 19, but his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. The crossing of the hands did not have to do with his age and misunderstanding or being confused, nothing like that. It was deliberate. That is explicit by the time we get to verse 19. Nothing was accidental here. Further, we go to 15 and 16. 15 and 16. And he blessed Joseph. He blessed Joseph by blessing his sons. Verse 16. Bless the lads. He blesses Joseph by blessing his sons. If his sons are blessed, then Joseph is blessed. Just like when Canaan was cursed, Ham was cursed. In Genesis 9, 24 to 27, Canaan was cursed, but in the curse of Canaan, Ham, the father, was cursed. Because no father wants the son to be cursed. So if the son is cursed, it will bring misery to the father. Even if he doesn't experience the same punishment, the misery of that punishment will be experienced um, by the father. In this way, the blessing is. And as he blesses Joseph, he calls on God. And what does he say about God in verse 15? Before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. In Genesis 17, 1 to 8, God told Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. And to walk is to live a godly life before the Lord. A biblical definition of walking is to live a righteous or godly life in the presence of God. That's what it means to walk. That's what they did. Also, verse 15, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. God has shepherded him all his life. God is the good shepherd. Psalm 23, 1. John 10, 11 to 18. The good shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd. And he shepherded, pastored the sheep of his flock, including Jacob, all of Jacob's life. Even in 49, 24, in his Final prophecy and blessing, Genesis 49, 24, it says, From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. The shepherd, the stone of Israel. Speaking of the shepherd and Christ, we come to verse 16. It says, May the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the lads. The angel... This word angel, in its basic meaning, means messenger. 
the messenger may be a heavenly messenger or an earthly messenger. As earthly messengers, priests, prophets, and emissaries from one nation to another are called by this word, but not rendered the same way in those cases. They will be rendered messengers. But when it's dealing with one from heaven, it's rendered angel. But in this case, it is not a created angel, not a regular angel, not one of the chosen good angels. It has to be the heavenly mediator, the heavenly messenger, the uncreated angel, Christ himself. There is no other way to look at this because the created angels do not bless the lads and cannot be used as a parallel to the God before whom, the God who has been, cannot be a parallel to that. This angel has to be Christ in his pre-incarnate state, revealing himself through Christophanies throughout the Old Testament. And many examples in the book of Genesis and a few with the patriarch Jacob. He's acknowledging that. He's noting that fact in anticipation, both based on what he has already accomplished, but also if Christ reveals himself to Jacob, is he not going to explain the future and the gospel to Jacob? Make sure to preach and explain the gospel to Jacob. So this is Christ here, and we'll see more evidence of this um, example, that it is Christ. Further, verse 16, the second half, and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Which benediction does come to fruition throughout history because we don't normally remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We can remember Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh, the 12 tribes, but all the other names don't live on in our memory, not typically, and also they did not receive inheritances in the land of Canaan, but these sons of Joseph did. They received the inheritance and their territories were named after them even to the extent that Ephraim is a synonym of the northern kingdom, Israel. Sometimes in the prophets, Ephraim is a a synonymous name to Israel, the northern kingdom of the ten tribes. Verse 17, When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. In verse 17, it displeased him. Original, in the original language, it says, and it was evil. It was evil to him. It was evil to him because now here Joseph is reacting. He has this impulsive reaction to Jacob. He has been honoring Jacob, but he sees that this is such an unusual occurrence. There must be something wrong here. There must be something wrong. Placing the hands the way he did and pronouncing the blessing the way he did, there must be something wrong here because it was uncustomary for this to happen. And in, in that sense, 
since it was uncustomary, and we'll see from the book of Deuteronomy that it was actually in the law, and other nations regularly practice it the way it is in the book of Deuteronomy in the law. So in that sense, it was evil to Joseph that Jacob would do something contrary to known laws and customs. Everyone knows what to do, but Jacob goes contrary to it. To the extent that Joseph has to grasp, grab a hold of his father's hand and to shift it. Verse 18, And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. Joseph also knows that once it's said, it is done. He understands that biblical principle that if one makes a promise, one makes a covenant, then one cannot break that covenant or break that promise. If one does, then there is a severe consequence to it. It has to be fulfilled. If it is said, it must be done the way it was said. But 19. Here, Jacob clarifies, but his father refused and said. He refused because he has the Holy Spirit and he knows he's a prophet and he knows what God has told him to say. So he must say it the way God told him to say it according to God's free will, not man's free will. God's free will, he refused. I know, my son, I know. He repeats it for emphasis. Don't think that I'm senile. Don't think that I'm confused. Don't think, don't think that I don't know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing, my son. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. It's not as though Manasseh is being deprived, completely deprived. He's not getting what he ought to get according to law and custom. He's not getting what he ought to get that way, but it's, it's not as though he's getting zero. He's not getting zero. He is getting something and he will be great. I'm just making, Jacob says, I'm just making Ephraim greater than Manasseh according to my will, which is God's will that I am announcing to you. Verse 20, and he blessed them that day saying, by you, Israel shall pronounce blessing." saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. He blessed them that day with a prophetic blessing, a special prophetic blessing in relation to the promises of God. And also carefully, let's notice in verse 20, in English it's um, indistinct, but in the original language, when it says by you, It is singular, even though it says, and he blessed them that day. Likely, he's using this, or this is in relation to both Ephraim, Manasseh, and Joseph. So the plural in reference to Ephraim and Manasseh, but the you in reference to Joseph, by you or in you, Israel shall pronounce blessing. So 
God, through Israel, the patriarch, pronounces blessing on Joseph, which is experienced by Ephraim and Manasseh. And this incident will become so famous, it will become an axiom or an axiomatic blessing or an axiomatic benediction. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh, which outside the Bible, there is evidence in Jewish sources that when the Jews wanted to bless one another, they would repeat this benediction. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh when they bless one another, generally, commonly speaking. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. That is, God blesses whomever he chooses to bless, however he chooses to bless, the secondborn ahead of the firstborn, with a double inheritance compared to Manasseh, a double inheritance, and not because God saw anything good in Ephraim. Right. Not because God saw something deficient in Manasseh, but according to God's own will. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9, 16. This is a perfect illustration of that truth. This whole chapter is. Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. In case the blessing and the poetry confuses the reader, Moses tells us by the Holy Spirit in verse 20, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. That's the conclusion. There should be no doubt. Because people tend to doubt and they tend to make excuses for poetry. But we can't do that. This would be like in Job, Job 1, 20 to 22, when Job says, uh, The Lord, um, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's poetic, right? right. And there are interpreters who say, Job was wrong. Job <laughs> sinned. Job should not have said those words. However, verse 22, the next verse says, Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he ascribe unseemliness to God. He didn't blame God for anything, and he didn't sin when he made the previous statement in Job 1.21. The same here. The Spirit is telling us that the summary of this Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. There's no way to misinterpret. 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. He knows he's about to die. As we said in verse 48, verse 2, he knew, 1 and 2, he knew he was about to die. He had a sickness unto death. So, as a result, God, he pronounces the blessing and then looks to the future. God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. This will certainly happen. Right. Which does happen. It happened in the sense of Jacob being buried in Canaan. And then later, Moses took the bones of Joseph upon the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, Moses took the bones of Joseph to the land of Canaan to bury Joseph in Canaan. And not only that, 
the whole nation was delivered out of Egypt back to the land of Canaan according to the prediction, prophecy of Genesis 15, 13 to 16. 15, 13 to 16. God said all of this would happen and then it comes to pass in Exodus 22 now, verse 22. And I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Verse 22. One portion more than your brothers. This has been explained in terms of Ephraim being blessed more than Manasseh. We haven't done any cross-references on this matter, but the firstborn received a double portion of inheritance. The firstborn double portion, unless the father wanted to change it, and he would have to change it before his death to change any of the inheritance. And he does so in this case. A double portion, an extra portion to Ephraim when Manasseh should have received it. But we might ask, why not Reuben? Wasn't Reuben the firstborn? Yes, Reuben was the firstborn, but it was taken away from him too, and for a reason. We'll see. Then also in verse 22, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. This last expression here in verse 22 has a few interpretations. There is no account of Jacob actually doing this with his own sword and bow. There is no account in the book of Genesis of Jacob doing this. So then we have a few options. Does he mean this spiritually speaking, figuratively speaking? Or does he mean the massacre of Simeon and Levi? of the Shechemites. Remember that in Genesis 34? In Genesis 34, he says, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. However, in Genesis 34, Jacob was loath to what happened over there. He cursed them. He didn't curse them at the time. He will curse them in Genesis 49, 49, 5 and 6. Simeon and Levi Our brothers, their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. In this way, we know he's not happy about Simeon and Levi's massacre of the Shechemite men in Genesis 34. So he's not referring to that because he had no part in it. They did it deceitfully. They even deceived their own father in what they were doing. So likely that's not the case. So then the third option is there was an incident that occurred in the life of Jacob that is not recorded, but it is mentioned here in verse 22, that some incident happened where he had to conquer the uh, the Amorites or the Canaanites with his own sword and bow. 
He had to engage in warfare, and God gave him victory in that. That may be the case also. That should not surprise us if that's the case. We might say, somebody might say, well, it's not there, so you can't say it was there. Well, many times in the Bible, there are things mentioned that are mentioned later, not mentioned earlier. For example, um, proleptically. We used that expression earlier in reference to verses 8 and following in this chapter. That sometimes something is mentioned later that might be implied earlier, but not explicitly stated earlier. But what did Jacob say when his sons massacred the Shechemite men? He said, now the Canaanites and the Perizzites are going to come and attack me. And my number being few, they're going to overwhelm us. Remember he said that? So perhaps at some point they did attempt it, but he had to conquer them when they attacked. Perhaps so. And this is in verse 22. In in the literal sense, that would be the case. Um, It seems that most likely either the first occasion or, or the first interpretation, the spiritual, or the third one are likely the case. And... I think the the third option, that is, some incident was not recorded, and that is mentioned here in verse 22. I think that is the best option of those three. Remember the end of the book of John? Many other things Jesus performed, many, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, which I suppose if they were written, the whole world would not contain the books which would be written. So in that sense, many things Jesus did, are not recorded in the book of John or in the New Testament. Is it a surprise that many things would be written in the Old Testament and many things would not be written in the Old Testament that actually did occur? Of course. 3,600 years of history cannot be all compiled in the pages of the Old Testament. 3,600 years of history, even many significant events. So we shouldn't assume that whatever we read in a given chapter of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is all that we can know or all that we can understand about that incident. We have to dig throughout the rest of the scriptures and also some things by implication draw a fair conclusion as to what actually happened. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.